Good evening. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones, and I'm one of your pastors here. Privileged to serve you in that way. And so I, I want to take just a moment before we begin the sermon. I think given the things that have happened this weekend, it's appropriate to provide some space for lament over some things we've seen in Charlottesville and the things we've seen in our country. And I just want to lead us in prayer uh, to consider that, to, uh, to recognize that, and to respond to that together. Our God, we lament. We're not surprised by, but we lament what we have seen of, of the racism and the hatred that is in our world. We recognize that and we denounce in the name of Jesus every form of white supremacy that we have seen. We recognize that that is, is demonic, is satanic in its origin. We recognize that it is a defiance, a defiance of your design, of your plan for humanity, which is every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every ethnicity drawn together in the name of Jesus to worship you together. We pray for peace and hope and justice as we look at our world and lament what we see and let it awaken within us a longing for that day when you make all things right and new. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Sometimes you realize you're in a place where you just don't fit. You ever realize that? You end up in a spot where you just don't fit uh, there. And, and whenever you do, you feel at least a little bit of pressure. That's true in a metaphorical sense, that you feel like somewhere you don't fit, that you ended up. It was also true for me this past week in a very physical sense. My children and I, we went to the St. Louis City Museum. Anybody ever been St. Louis City Museum? That is an amazing place, isn't it, okay? This is a place I'm pretty sure lawyers don't know about and insurance companies because there is every form of potential litigation there that you can possibly dream of. It is basically a 10-story jungle gym, okay? With a 10-story slide and on the outside of it, airplanes, literally airplanes hanging out there that you can climb out to and a school bus hanging off the side of the building, and you pay to go in there to risk your life in this place. Well, we went in there, and I'm just determined to do every possible thing with my kids. I'm not going to, to go stay away from anything. I'm going to do it all, okay? And so I went in there, and you can see there just a little thing that there's an arch kind of to it right there. It doesn't really show it right there, but that thing gets smaller the higher you get up. It gets narrower. And in theory, I think what is supposed to happen is you go up there and then you kind of put your feet forward and then you climb down this way, okay? But I get up there to the top of that and I'm up there like this and I'm trying to bring a leg forward and it's not happening. And I'm trying to bring another leg forward and that's not happening either. And you remember Winnie the Pooh when he's in that hole trying to go into rabbit's hole? It's kind of like that, okay? Except I've got... 12 children behind me going, like that, all behind me right there. And I shh, look over there. And, and so I'm trying to get through this. And, and what I realize is something four stories above the ground that I should have realized when I was on the ground. And that is, this may not be made for me. 
It may be that when they created this, they weren't thinking of people in their mid-40s getting in this. It may be that this was not designed for me. I was in a place where I didn't fit and I was feeling the pressure. Well, it's true at the City Museum and it's true in your life in this world. You see, Right now, we live in a world in which the world around us, the culture around us increasingly doesn't fit, the, we don't, they don't fit the values that we hold as believers in Jesus Christ. And we feel pressure at times to conform to the values of the culture around us. We're feeling pressure at times to conform to a place because we realize we're in a spot where in some sense, we don't fit. <laughs> and we're feeling the pressure. Now, some people seem surprised by this, but we shouldn't be. You see, that's the historical position of Christian faith. The historical position of Christians in relation to their culture is to be a countercultural voice that proclaims Jesus is Lord above every earthly empire. Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. But now we are facing new challenges in our culture. And I think it provides us an opportunity to return to we as the people of God being a countercultural voice, but we're going to feel the pinch and the pressure of not fitting. Now, there are some people who seem to want to go back to some mythical moment that they imagine existed in the past. It's a mythical moment in the past when somehow Jesus and America were walking arm in arm. I don't want to go back there. I don't think it ever existed. And I don't want to go back there because Jesus did not die to become a mascot for any nation. Jesus died and rose to bring a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that will never end. And we are called to be countercultural people in service of a higher king. But what do we do when we feel the pressure of being in a culture where we don't fit? Well, I want you to recognize something. We are not the first generation to feel this pressure. Let's go back in our minds to the 60s. I don't mean the 1960s. I don't even mean the 1860s. I'm talking about the 60s, 60s. Like 30 years after Jesus walked around in Judea and Galilee. And I want us to go back to the place that today we know as Turkey, the landmass known as Asia Minor. And I want us to recognize that throughout this landmass during this time, there were tiny clusters of communities of believers in Jesus Christ. And these tiny clusters, each one was probably no bigger than one of our community groups, 12 to 20 people probably in each of these tiny clusters of believers scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they were Jewish, most of them. And the Jewish faith, even though it seemed strange to the Romans, because after all, they only had one God instead of many, and they didn't build idols to their one God, the Jewish faith was respected and protected by the Romans. And here's why. Because it was ancient. And the Romans respected that which was ancient. But not only was it ancient, they had a temple. They had a priesthood. They had sacrifices. So there were things in the Jewish faith that overlapped with many of the things that the Romans were familiar with. But then these people became believers in Jesus. 
And they are having a faith now in which in their practices, there is no temple, there is no sacrifice that at least people are seeing, there is no priesthood, none of those things. And suddenly they become outcasts in their culture. But the tide is turning in other ways as well. As Peter writes this letter, 1 Peter, as he writes it to them, in Jerusalem, one of Jesus' first followers, James, has just been beheaded. And in Rome, Emperor Nero sits on the throne and he is no friend of believers in Jesus Christ. But Simon Peter, he's in Rome too. And he is one of the first and the closest followers of Jesus. And as he feels this tide turning and he hears from these believers in Asia Minor who are about to suffer persecution, they feel like they're feeling pressure. And as he hears about them, he writes a letter to them, sends it with a messenger, church to church to church, all the way through Asia Minor. And that letter is the letter we know as 1 Peter. And I want you to imagine for a moment the excitement when a messenger from Simon Peter shows up in your church, because you see, you and I, and even they in that day in this area, when they thought about Jesus, they could just imagine what Jesus might have been like. But Simon Peter, he had walked with Jesus. He had talked with Jesus. He had seen Jesus face to face. He had seen Jesus dead. He had seen Jesus alive. He had seen Jesus ascend up into the eastern sky. Simon Peter knew Jesus personally. He knew Jesus as a friend even before he recognized him as the Lord. And they must have wondered, what is it Peter's going to tell us? What's he going to tell us to do? Will he maybe tell us as we're feeling the pressure from our culture, will he tell us to rise up and install new leaders that will be on our side and will support our agenda? That's not altogether uh, impossible at this point because at this time in Judea and Galilee, there's, there's talk about a rebellion against Rome at that time. But that's not Peter's solution. He doesn't tell them to rise up and demand leaders to take their side. Neither does he tell them to back away from certain beliefs that were unpopular in their culture. The response that Peter gives them to the pressure they are facing in a culture where they don't belong is simple and yet surprising. He says, be holy. He says it in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He quotes from the Old Testament where God says to the Israelites, be holy because I, the Lord God, I'm holy. Now, I got to think that the people that first got this, they were thinking at first, Peter, is that really all you got? I mean, we're, we're about to be persecuted, we feel like. We're feeling pressure. And all you've got, Peter, is be holy? That's all you've got for us? And yet that is the answer that Peter gives to how to respond when you're living in a culture where you don't fit. This answer only makes sense if we understand what this word meant in their culture. Because see, we've got a problem with the word holy and holiness. It's become a church word, okay? You know what church words? Those ones that we say when we're at church, but we don't actually think about what we're saying. Things like hedge of protection. Somebody says, I want you to go to pray a hedge of protection. Now folks, I got a hedge in my front yard and it doesn't offer a lot of protection. I don't know why anybody wants a hedge of protection around them. Or, or somebody says, you know what, let me pray about that and I'll give you an answer later, which is code for, I don't want to tell you no to your face, so I'm going to go pray about it, okay? Those are church words, okay? Holiness has become one of those church words 
that we don't think about what it means. And how it's used outside the church doesn't help either because we hear it outside the church. It's usually in some sense similar to Robin in the 1960s Batman. You remember? He would put holy in front of everything. Holy Kleenex Batman. It was right under our noses, whatever it may be. And and you may use it that way. Something surprises you and you're like, holy cow. And something really surprises you. And you say, holy words we don't say in sermons. And you're responding in that way, but you don't think about what holy even means. And even if we do think about it, here's how we usually define it, as distance or separation. Distance or separation. Being distant or separated from anything that's bad or anything that's sinful. And I was raised in a church in which that was the emphasis, is holiness being about distance and separation. In the church I was raised in, women weren't allowed to wear jeans because that would be too close to men's clothing. We couldn't listen to music that had drums because that was too close to rock and roll. And we couldn't dance because that was just too close to everything. And so that was the, 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 the meaning of holiness was this distance or this separation. You may not have been raised that way, but I suspect it still affects the way that you understand holiness. And that often we think about it simply as distance or separation, but that is not what Peter meant when he used the word holy. You see, when he used this word, it was not a church word and its primary meaning was not distance from sin. Holiness was the devotion of something or someone as the possession of a particular God to be used for his purposes. It was the devotion of something or someone to be used by a particular God. Holiness wasn't about distance from sinners. It was about nearness to the Savior. Holiness was about being devoted to the purposes of God in the world, in the life that you were living. And we see that in the Old Testament. When we say that, when we see that Moses is on holy ground before the burning bush, that ground he was on was not distant or separated from the land around him. It was devoted to God's purpose in that place. When we hear the seraphim say in Isaiah chapter six, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. They aren't saying distant, distant, distant. What they are saying is that he is devoted to the third power, to his purposes in the world. And when it says here, be holy as God is holy, it's not saying be distant from the world. It's saying to live as God's possession in the place where you are devoted to his purposes. That's what it's communicating. And so these people are reading this and are wondering how do we respond to a world where we're feeling pressure because we don't fit. And you may not be feeling the same pressure that they did, but I can almost guarantee you there is somewhere in your life that you're feeling pressure to conform to the values of the world around you. It may be cultural changes that you're feeling at work or at school where, where you're being pressured to take values that don't glorify God. It may be people in your life, whether family or friends, that are pressuring you to take sides on the political left or the political right instead of lining up with Jesus Christ. It may be that simply taking your values from the world in the sense of valuing yourself by your performance and your success. But whatever it may be, the answer to this is be holy. 
be holy, pursue holiness. And in chapter two of 1 Peter, he spells out, here is how to be holy and why it is important. So I want us to stand and hear together 1 Peter chapter two, beginning in verse one. Peter writes, therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. There went about 90% of Facebook and Twitter right there. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, your spiritual house, being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, it's a stone that the builder rejected. This one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you, you're a chosen race royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they do slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now remember, they're feeling the tide turning and they know that they no longer fit in their culture. The truths that they believed have turned them into targets and what Peter has called them to do is to be holy. And the first way that he unpacks for them to do that is to put away their hatred, to put away their hatred. He says, put away malice or hatred, lying, hypocrisy, jealousy, gossip, put all those things away. And why does he say this? Well, it's because as they feel the pressure of people unfairly treating them, their first and natural response would be to be hateful, to be malicious, and to talk in slanderous ways about those who are pressuring them. And he says, put it away. He says, put away all of this hatred. And this is important for us to understand that definition of holiness. Because you see, if holiness is about distance, like we sometimes think it is, then it might be possible for hatred to coexist with holiness because that means I'm supposed to be separated from the world that's out there and I can stand over here and look at how bad they are, lob an occasional rock in their direction and I can have hate and holiness at the same time, but that's not what holiness is or means. Holiness is devotion to God in our lives in the world. 
That means we are among and beside people living holy lives. And it is devotion to God's purposes in redeeming and restoring his world. And if we are devoted to God's purposes, hatred of other human beings who bear God's image cannot coexist with holiness. Hatred and holiness cannot coexist. And what that means is that when we speak against sin and injustice, which we should, we do so not from a a perspective of hatred or of anger or of malice. We speak from a perspective and a position of humility and brokenness. That's how we speak about it. Because we grow in holiness, not through hatred, but through hunger. Through hunger. Look at what he says there. Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word. Now, something I've noticed about infants, newborns, they don't skip meals well. Anybody notice that? They don't skip meals well. When they skip a meal, they inform you that they have skipped a meal and they continue to inform you until you fulfill their needs. That's because God has wired them. They know instinctively that their survival and their growth require feeding. And that's how we grow in holiness. We grow in holiness through a hunger for God's kingdom, through a hunger for God's word, and it's convinced that that only God's ways at work in the world can satisfy our souls and make us grow. That's how we grow, is by hungering and, and being satisfied in the word of God. You want to grow in holiness? Let me ask you a crucial question. What are you hungry for? Like deep inside of you, what are you most hungry for? You may be like, I don't know what I'm hungry for. Let me give you a suggestion to help you figure out. What does your mind wander to in those moments when there's nothing else to distract you? Where does your mind go? That's probably what your soul is hungry for. It's probably what deep inside you're convinced will satisfy you. Now, it may not be something sinful. It may be a particular job you want to attain. It may be a particular person that you want to be with. It may be simply having an end of the month with money left in the bank. It may be any of those things. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. But understand this. None of them will ultimately satisfy you. You attain it, you get it, you're going to want something more. It's not going to satisfy you. But then again, what you hunger for may be something sinful. Maybe an addiction that you struggled with that you, you long sometimes to return to. Maybe speaking words that compromise God's truth or tear people down, whatever it may be. Each time you do it, you think, this will satisfy me enough that I won't do it again. But it never satisfies you. Sin is a pacifier laced with poison. It will never satisfy you and it will ultimately destroy you. It won't satisfy you. And until you recognize that there is no life to be found in that sin that you're hungering for, it will keep coming back. I heard Jackie Hill Perry this past week say these words. You'll never put to death what you believe is keeping you alive. 
you'll never put to death what you think is keeping you alive. In other words, as long as you are deriving life or think you are from sin, as long as you are trying to get life out of that, as long as you're convinced that that's going to give me life and satisfaction, you will keep going back to it. It's only when you recognize that it brings you no life that you can put a sin to death. The struggle in Asia Minor when Peter wrote these words was malice and hatred and gossip as they felt the pressure of a culture where they felt that they no longer belonged. And Peter's answer is taste and see that the Lord is good. Be holy by putting away your hatred and getting hungry. Your struggle, mine, isn't the same as theirs, but the answer is the same. It is holiness. And it is holiness that is fed by us hungering for something better, something greater. C.S. Lewis once spoke these words. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. Holiness grows from a recognition that ultimate satisfaction is found only in Christ. Now remember that one of the things that made Christians feel so out of place and seem so out of place to their culture is that everybody else in their religion, almost everybody else, had a temple and a priesthood. And that's what helps us to make sense of this next verse where it says in verses four and five that these people of God that he's writing to are living stones being built into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. You see, a temple in their world was the place where you encountered God. That's the place where you encountered God. It was a place that was devoted to a particular God and you encountered that God there. But what he's saying to them here in this text is, you are that place now. You are the temple. You, the people, are the priesthood. You are the place where the world is supposed to glimpse God. That's what you are. And that grows out of this holiness, where our lives of holiness are supposed to display to the world the glory and the nature of God. And in this temple, Peter spells out in verses six through eight, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. Now, you know what a cornerstone is. You see one every Sunday. You walk by, don't you? It's right out here on the corner of this building. It says 1886 on it. In the ancient world, a cornerstone was the first stone laid in the construction of a building. And everything was measured from the cornerstone. Every measurement was measured, was taken from the cornerstone. And so what he's expressing in this is if you want to pursue holiness, don't take your measurements of your life from the culture. Take them from the cornerstone. Take them from Christ. He is the cornerstone. And then he has two images here that are beautiful and important. He says, on the one hand, if you embrace Christ, if you trust in him, that cornerstone guarantees that you will never be, he says, put to shame. Remember, what's the deal with shame right here? 
We see one of the main competitors to holiness in our lives is that we are afraid sometimes that what we are doing for God, what it is costing us to follow God, we are concerned at times that the payoff really isn't worth it. Is it really worth it to invest what I am investing in following Jesus? Is it really worth it to follow him? Is it really worth it what it's costing me to follow Jesus? And he says, if you make your life founded on that cornerstone, you will never be put to shame. You'll never find out that it wasn't worth it. And why is he able to make that promise? Well, it's very simple. You see, if God was able to turn the cross of Christ, the greatest tragedy seemingly the world had ever seen, If God was able to turn that into a triumph, there is nothing in your life, tragic or costly, that he can't turn into triumph too. And so you will never be put to shame. But then he also says that the world around us, in verse eight, for them, the same stone that becomes your guarantee is a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. The world keeps bumping against it and scraping their ankle against it. It's something that's always there. Why? It's because the holiness that we have in Christ will never make sense to the world around us. And so they keep bumping it, scraping against it, tripping over it. Why? Because it doesn't make sense to the world around us. And that helps us to understand the last verses in verses 11 and 12, where he says, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles, abstain from sinful desires. It's a much better translation. Some of them have abstain from the passions of the flesh, which just sounds like a really bad romance novel. It's abstain from sinful desires, much better, that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and glorify God on the day he visits. I want you to notice something here. Your holiness isn't for God's sake. He has plenty of holiness. It isn't for your sake to earn his favor. You can never earn his favor. It is for the sake of the world that we are called to be holy. So that when they see our good works, they will glorify God either by them trusting in Christ and turning to him, or it says on the day God comes to visit or on the day of visitation. Now we read that in our culture and we think of God showing up and sitting on the front porch with a mint julep and sharing with us, okay? That's what we think of when we think of coming to visit. That's not what it's saying right here when it says coming to visit, when God comes to visit. It's more like a few months ago when my wife met me at the door when I came home And she said, you have two children downstairs that need to talk to you. And so I went downstairs, and as it turned out, they had been doing flips and handstands downstairs and had knocked not one, but two holes in the sheetrock downstairs. Now, when I went downstairs, we had a day of visitation down there, okay? We had a time when I came to visit. And and that day of visitation was a time when judgment was brought against those who rightly deserved judgment, okay? And so when it speaks of God coming to visit, 
When he speaks of his day of visitation, that's what it's talking about. When God himself shows up in Christ and makes all things right and new. It says, on that day, even those who have rejected him will see and will glorify him because of what they have seen in you, what they've seen in you. This isn't going to be easy. It wasn't for them. Do you realize that within a decade of the moment when this text was written, Peter had been crucified? Paul had been beheaded. Hundreds, maybe thousands of Christians around Rome had died and the flesh of Christians became the fuel for Nero's fury as he took it out on the Christians and literally used Christians as torches, burned them alive to light his banquets. That's what's coming next after this text. It's not easy. It's not supposed to be. But we are called to holiness even in a world where we do not belong. I want to leave you with three simple ways to practice holiness this week. Here's the first one. Stop trying to stop sinning. Some of you are like, did he say that? Stop trying to stop sinning. See, often we think holiness is nothing more than getting rid of sin, okay? Okay. But remember, holiness is about devotion to God. And here's what I want us to understand. When you are fighting against sin, if all you're saying is, I gotta stop this sin, I gotta stop this sin, I wanna stop this sin, then you're still focused on the sin. And you know what will happen? You will end up going right back to it because that's where your focus is. You'll go back to the sin if what your goal is, is to stop sinning. But you see, if holiness is devotion to God's purposes, our goal is not to stop sinning. Our goal is to develop a hunger for something greater than the sin. And our focus is a devotion to God's purposes for us. If you're fighting against losing your temper with your kids and you say over and over, I just gotta stop losing, I've gotta stop, you will lose it. You will lose it again and again and again. But if you develop a a vision and a devotion for the ways that God has been patient with you as his child, and if you want your children, what your passion, what you are hungry for is for your children to see in your life how God has been patient with you and you want that to be reflected, I'm not going to tell you it will suddenly happen perfectly and will all be easy. I am saying you'll never make any progress until you have a hunger for something better than just stopping the sin. You're struggling against pornography. And as long as you're just saying, I'm not going to do that again, I'm not going to do it again, I'm not going to do it again, give yourself three days and you'll be right back where you started. Unless you develop a hunger for something greater a devotion to the greater satisfaction of seeing every person as someone created in God's image and a recognition that no human being created in God's image ought to be treated as an object for others' pleasure. And again, I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm saying you'll begin to make progress when you're hungry for something better. So stop trying to stop sinning and get hungry for something better. Second thing I want to leave you with, live with a love that the world trips over. 
Remember it said that Jesus, his, his presence would be to those who didn't believe. They just keep bumping up against it and tripping over it. this cornerstone, Jesus. I want us to live with a love that gets in the way of the world so that they trip over it. And they may not like what we say and they may not like what we do, but they just keep bumping into our love no matter what they do. See, once again, if holiness is about distance, we can stand at a distance and hurl rocks at people and be condemning toward them. But if holiness is devotion among the people, then we can't do that. I think one of the areas we need to learn that in as believers in Jesus Christ today is in the ways that we respond to persons who are homosexual. You see, we rightly recognize as believers in Jesus Christ, that that from what we understand in Scripture, that that which glorifies God in our sexual relationships is a husband and wife married, that that's where sexual expression is to occur. And outside of that, we're called to celibacy. And yet, people have used that truth as an excuse to be able to mock and marginalize and degrade people who are homosexual. You see, that's what we've done in many cases. And and when we do that, we are marginalizing and degrading, in many cases, our homosexual brothers and sisters in Christ who are fighting hard and are struggling to be able to be faithful in celibacy and faithful to Christ in their lives. And we're pushing them to the side and saying to them, there are some sins we don't talk about and we don't deal with. What if, what if we were the people who simultaneously speak truth, but at the same time, we are the most loyal friends that our homosexual neighbors have? What if when somebody makes a gay slur or somebody makes a joke about somebody who is homosexual, what if we were the first person to say, that's not how you treat somebody created in God's image? What if we were the first instead of the last? to speak up when we need to speak up. See, that's a world, a love that the world's gonna trip over because it doesn't make sense for you to say that you believe these certain things from God's word and yet you are the most sacrificially loving people that anybody can find. And the people who will stand against hatred and bullying and marginalization in our world. That's what we can do when we live with a love that the world trips over. The last thing I want to leave you with is remember, your holiness is never the final word. Praise God. My holiness is not the final word. Your holiness is not the final word because neither of us has a holiness that will live up to God's standard. You see what happened in Jesus Christ is that the three times holy God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, that God himself came to us in the flesh of an infant and lived the perfect life we cannot live and died the death that we deserve to die because of our failures to be holy. And in the empty tomb, he triumphed over death. And for anybody who trusts in him, God gives us all of his holiness as our own. You aren't trying to be holy to impress God because you'll you'll never measure up to his standard. You're not even holy for your own sake 
Because that makes Christianity some sort of a self-help, self-improvement thing. You're holy for the sake of the world around you, but we do that. We do that. Not from a foundation of fear of how do I get God to like me, but rather from a foundation of confidence that God has loved me in Christ. I have placed my faith in him, and because of that, God has given me his holiness. And when God the Father looks at me, he can never see anything less than the holiness of Jesus. Praise God. Your holiness is not the final word, and neither is mine. When I was in that archway, I couldn't go back, and I couldn't go forward, at least with my feet first. So I did the only thing I could do. I went down head first and grabbed myself as I got to the end. And thankfully, I had a child, one of my children down there, who kind of helped me out a little bit out of there. I took the plunge because I couldn't go backwards. And when we feel a world around us that is putting pressure on us, I don't know where you're going to end up, but plunge in and seek holiness. I don't know where you're going to land, but plunge in and seek it anyway, that God may be glorified in the world around us. Amen.